Hi, this is James Devine, and I am an educator who has come out of the trenches. Listen in as my friend and colleague Dana Goodyear shares stories and tips from other educators who have come out of the trenches. Welcome to the Out of the Trenches podcast. This is Dana Goodyear. Thanks my next guest is Andrea Haas. With over two decades of experience in education and a desire to keep good teachers in the profession, Andrea founded Elm Tree Education. Elm Tree is dedicated to providing accessible, ongoing online professional development customized to meet the diverse needs of students. Andrea, a National Board Certified Teacher in Literacy, has an extensive background in designing professional development programs for teachers and mentoring educators. Her unwavering passion lies in literacy instruction particularly in cultivating practices that embrace the whole child and prioritize cultural responsiveness and inclusivity. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Well, let's start off with uh, the trench story. I ask everybody about a time you when you were in the trenches and managed to crawl out. Yeah, so, uh, you know, my career has taken lots of twists and turns, Um like you said, I've been in this game now for 20 years and so a little over 20 years. And so I, I realized pretty early on that, uh, something that I need, something that's like my personality is mm-hmm. that, uh, I, and I don't, I never want to say that when I master something, cause that's never true. I don't think you ever actually master teaching ever, <laughs> like ever. I mean, I think you, I think you get better, but I don't know that you ever like master it. I think you could always grow even when you're like in your last final years. Um, but when I would get to a position and then I would feel like, okay, I've got this kind of like, I kind of got this handled. That's usually yeah. when I would get what I kind of call my like five year itch, like, uh, that I needed to kind of like, okay, well then let's do something different. I need a challenge. I need something more. And so for me, you know, getting out of the trenches happened often because I would get into a place and I was like, okay, if this has become too automatic for me and I'm not challenging myself or having to do some learning and growing, then I need to make a step out and go do something else. And so for me, that's looked like um, changing districts, uh, changing positions between special education and general education, uh, uh, changing grade levels. And then, um, once I was a little over a decade in to the profession, uh, it was actually getting out of the classroom and taking on more teacher leadership roles. Mm -hmm. So, um, I knew pretty early on, I never wanted to be an administrator. That just doesn't feel like that's something that would, um, feed me, uh, is to manage, people and things and and all, and all the things that you do as an administrator. Um, but I do want to affect change and I do yeah. like working with other teachers. So I, cause I think that's kind of the best of both worlds for me is that I love working with other teachers and kind of imparting some of the things that I've learned along the way and best practices. And then also getting to work with students still when I, you know, if I go into a classroom or, or those kinds of things. And now these days, what I'm offering is online because I just feel like one of the things that the good part about COVID was that people kind of became more open to doing some learning remotely. Mm-hmm. And I still think there's a lot of power in being in the classroom, like in real time and doing some one-on-one coaching or modeling instruction and all those kinds of things. But you know, not every teacher has access to that. 
And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, if they're in a school district that's remote and, you know, they don't have the financial resources and they don't have um, uh, just the infrastructure in their district set up to support teachers, like they're going to be looking for ways to get to have opportunities. And it, and they might not have the money to go travel to another bigger city where a conference is happening or where you might take a workshop. And honestly, I also think sometimes with workshops, some could be really great, but often you're, you're in that workshop, you're energized, you want to try something on, you go back to your classroom. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, yeah. maybe you get, yeah. yeah, maybe you get like overwhelmed by other things in that. I mean, in the old days, it was the binder, right? You used to have all these binders on your shelf because of all the, <laughs> the classes and workshops. You'd put the binder on the shelf. You wouldn't look at it again. Uh, or maybe you try with one little thing. But what I found for me personally was I wanted to try it, but then I needed to like keep talking about it afterwards. Like there needed to be follow-up for me. It needed to be ongoing. And so that's what I'm really passionate about because I think, I mean, there's a lot of complex things happening in education, but I think that there are some teachers who are just dying on the vine because they're, um, there's been so many other things that have yeah. had to take yeah, priority and precedent. And so, and teacher growth and learning in some places has really taken a pretty big step back. It's kind of on the back burner now, um, which is unfortunate because I think that's like the number one factor in whether you're going to be successful as if you're investing in the teachers, but mm -hmm. that's my opinion. <laughs> so, so um, given that you are offering PD online, um, how does that follow through? Like if a teacher takes a course or if a team from a school takes a course, um, is there ongoing like coaching or just some type of follow up with them after they're done with it? Yes. So, um, and I'm trying to create also just like lots of different options for the, for the, for the busy teacher. Like if they really want to purchase a course, that's completely done, um, you know, offline, I have some things that are re recorded. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, uh, right now in a pilot phase with a program that I'm doing, that's going to be a five week, uh, I'm calling it kind of like a flip classroom style where I'll okay. send out, uh, videos, uh, once a week. For the teachers to watch at their leisure and i'm going to chunk them up into like little bite-sized pieces so you can binge it or you can just watch like a little bit at a time uh when you have time and then the time that we come together for a live zoom call is when we actually like dig in like so how okay. do you apply this in your classroom what did we talk about last week you know having some maybe accountability like okay. so uh, you said last week you're gonna try this on how did it go like you know let's talk about it and this is a place for us to like experiment and it's okay if we fail, but like, let's give some things a try and then see what we think and talk and learn and grow from each other and create that community. And then, um, after the five weeks are up, my intention is, is that there would be like a follow-up, you know, there wouldn't be any new content coming, but there would be, um, and maybe not once a week, but there'd be like once every couple of weeks, like a group kind of coaching call check-in, like, how are you, like, how's it going now, now that we're, mm -hmm you know, a month yeah. out now that we're a couple months out. Um, mm -hmm. and so I'm still in the pilot phase of that. I'm trying to make sure that before I launch it, like widely, I, you know, refine it and dial it into what, I mean, I think I know what I would have wanted as a teacher in the classroom, but you know, not everybody's Andrea. So I want to sure. make sure that sure. I'm, 
that I'm hitting the mark before it goes, it gets launched widely. But that's the kind of thing that I want to create is ways for there to be community, to be collaboration, um, learning, and that it's not just like a one and done kind of thing. Yeah, it sounds like a good uh, way of uh, trying this out, like you said, a pilot phase to see how it works for these groups. And then, you know, once you're done with that, um, you know, maybe expand it to a larger, you know, uh, clientele, like you said. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit, since you are a literacy specialist, about the science of reading um, and then how uh, a lot of teachers might oversimplify the multifaceted nature of reading instruction, mm-hmm. at least at the elementary school level. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say that, you know, my my actual teaching expertise is at the elementary school level. When I mentored, I mentored K-8. I spent a lot of time okay. in some middle schools, um, only a tiny bit in high school. So I will say that I can't necessarily speak you know, maybe I don't have the street cred when it comes to uh, (laughs) secondary as much. Although I think good teaching is good teaching no matter what, but you know, um, wherever you are, but uh, from the reading perspective, yeah. The the thing that is so interesting right now about this particular uh, time, and you know, it's been like the last five years probably uh, is just how the conversation around reading um, became pretty narrow. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, some of that was because of reporting that happened, podcasts, media attention, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's interesting because when people talk about the science of reading and this happens a lot in education in general, like if I say guided reading or balanced reading or science of reading, or, uh, you know, inquiry-based or project-based, whatever. Like if I say these words and then I talk to five different people, their definition of what that thing is in education sure. is, is going to vary <laughs> because yeah. I feel like some things get lost in translation. And science of reading is one where I think it gets lost in translation. And I guess I don't think it, I know it because when I talk to some teachers, even the way they ask me questions, mm-hmm. I have to say, okay, okay, I want to back up to you. What does it mean when we say science of reading? You know, because if they'll say something like, well, my district wants me to put in science of reading protocols. I'm like, what are that? What's that? The research says nothing about protocols. Like there's, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like there's no, or the district, um, I have to make more time for science of reading in my classroom. I'm like, well, weren't you already teaching reading? You know, these are the kinds of things that like I'm hearing and and I get why I can see it from a systems perspective, why this has all happened. And I can sure. see uh, how the conversation has gone, but like, I'm also aware of the history and like, this isn't a brand new conversation. This conversation has been happening for decades and decades and decades about like, what's the best way. And, you know, and is it this way or is it that way? And the truth is, is we need all the things like it, it can't just be about, decoding words off the page it's got to be also about comprehension so yeah um, and so the thing i worry about is when when also like there's a, a really big spotlight on like one area of reading um are you doing that at the expense of all the other things you know yeah. and lately like who's been even talking about writing instruction lately nobody like they're talking about reading but like the writing and the reading go hand in hand and so um you know or speaking and listening for example like 
So it just, it, it's interesting when we've, when we have this kind of laser focus all of a sudden, and it's kind of coming culturally. And then there's some of that culture wars thing that's coming into play that's happening, not just in education, but kind of in a lot of places in our country yeah. that, that there is a either or, and really it's a both and. And so that's the kind of stuff that I am also hoping to support teachers because I just feel like even people who've been teaching longer than me don't even know which way is up anymore with reading because of what the district has asked them to do. You know, and right. I always say the district, which is like, what's, who's that anyway, but the powers that be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The powers that be, um, you know, and there are, I mean, I know there are places all over this country where there are some intense mandates happening, mm -hmm. some, you know, thou shall not say these words anymore, or you have to use this particular curriculum with fidelity, you know, that's another fun word, uh, yeah. in education, <laughs> uh, but, um, but you know, there's just so much to that, that just is not the thing. And I think I, again, this is going to be my Andrea, um, uh, as you're probably gathering, um, I have a lot of things I feel pretty passionate about and opinionated mm -hmm. about in education, but, um, I just feel like all this stuff about curriculum and all this conversation about trying to teacher proof things, um, you know, by, by buying these scripted curriculum, like when all this stuff started happening, I kept looking around going like, why didn't we already figure out this doesn't work? Like, I thought we already knew yeah. this doesn't work, you know? And, um, and it's because again, I think we're focusing on the wrong thing. Like we're trying to put like a bandaid on some huge gash on a, like a head wound, you know, how they like bleed, yeah. like, right. It's like, it's like trying to take like a little tiny bandaid and putting it on this huge gashing head wound of the gap that we have of kids who are going through our system and not learning how to read. And really the source of all of this is again, the teachers, because yeah. I think it doesn't matter what curriculum you have. If the teacher doesn't understand the full breadth and depth of knowledge of all the things you need to know to be able to teach reading and to be able to diagnose and react in the moment and give the right support and just all of all of those things that have to happen, the curriculum is not going to matter because we're not we're not teaching robots. We're teaching kids and, yeah. you know, they're going to need different things. And the curriculum um, publishers make a lot of assumptions about who the kids are in the seats in front of you. And often yep. those assumptions could not be more wrong. So, um, yeah, that, that's just, that's that's like my I guess that's my why. You know, I just want to keep good teachers in the yeah. profession because I think they are um, just not getting the support that they need. And yeah. I, I know it's a systems issue and I know that like, you know, can I make a difference in the whole world? No, but can I make a little difference in my corner of the world? Yes. And so that's, that's kind of what fuels me and excites me about the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we spoke a little bit in the pre-chat just about how in my work, I'm seeing that um, with uh, teachers who are using uh, both in ELD and a and in language arts classes at a middle school, you know, these new curricula, um, even in social studies, I think as well, you know, that the district mandates, right? And then, mm -hmm. like, I remember, like, uh, nine years ago, like, I was, we were going away from the curriculum when I was teaching foreign language, but it's, um, I just, that's the question, like, why are we going back to this? And as well, like you say, um, yeah, we have kids that have various needs, but how, 
how can we trust that the publishers really know how to really scaffold because they're not in the classroom. They might've been in the classroom, but it's maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then the district powers that be, whether it's a district coach or, you know, a curriculum person at the district, they might be going into schools every so often, but they're not teaching the classes using the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm seeing how like there is that disconnect right from that, like, okay, let's use this curriculum with fidelity, but, those people who are saying it are not actually teaching the class, <laughs> seeing how the kids are reacting to these questions, the scripted questions, the, yeah. you know, all kids can learn the same way type things. So that kind of leads into my next uh, talking point, um, which I'm experiencing a lot at my school with a high number of ELDs. And I know in a lot of schools, um, they have uh, increased in their numbers of uh, multilingual learners. So Uh, What are your thoughts on vocab acquisition for ELDs? Yeah, I think the thing about um, ELDs in general is, and again, I can see the big system. I can see all the the pressures of like, we got to get them in here and we need our test scores and, you know, they've got to be meeting these standards and we got to, you know, all these kinds of things. And it's just like, the truth is like, you know, we're asking an awful lot of children who are, you know, suddenly immersed, some of them, especially like, I'm just thinking of some of those newcomers I know, you know, that I've worked with or seen. And it's just like, we're really asking a lot of them and, um, they, they can get exposure to language and it doesn't have to be pulling the print off the text yet. Like, and it also doesn't have to be going to, um, you know, I know a lot of the middle school teachers that I worked with were always worried about like presenting something that felt too babyish, you know, to like 12 year olds. Um, and I do think that there's been a lot of, of progress in that. I've, uh, there are some companies now like high noon books. Um, um, there's one called Sam and friends that, that, that are creating books that are a little bit more geared towards what a, tween or preteen, you know, preteen kind of would want to be reading and not too babyish yet using simpler, simpler, uh, texts like decodable texts that they, they can send out. But I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I'm just been thinking about a lot lately, and I've been, uh, really digging into this with some of the readings I've been doing and some of the podcasts I'm listening to that have guests who are much more expert on this than, than my, myself, um, is just this idea of like not looking at these students who are multilingual as having deficits. And that's, I feel like that's where we really keep coming from. And it's, it's like, why can't they have a conversation with a peer in their home language? If they have one, you know, like if, 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 uh, most of the class is English speakers, yet you've got a couple pockets of Spanish speakers or maybe even Portuguese or Ukrainian or whatever. Like, why can't the one who has a little bit more lang- or a language experience be that scaffold for those ELD kids? You know, like, like I just, I just feel like, <clears throat> sorry, I just feel like there, there has been some, there's been some shifts. I mean, I don't, I think, for a while, people were like, you know, you need to use English in this country and all that kind of stuff that was, you know, wrong. you know, that was what it was. And I don't feel like I see that anymore at all. But um, but like 
where are they, where are they strong? You know, and some of these languages have like a a really rich oral language history. Like their storytelling is oral. It's not actually written. And um, so where do they have those strengths? And again, you're not going to know as the teacher, you're not going to know all the languages, you know, you're, you're obviously not going to be multilingual yourself. I mean, maybe you are, but, and that's great. But, um, but what can you be doing? And, you know, also like there are, there's just tools. I mean, we have Google translate now and I know it's not perfect and things might again, literally get lost in translation a little bit, but like, I've just seen some teachers do some amazing things with, um, uh, there's one fifth grade teacher that I've worked with that I know that she'll have uh, a math story problem up on her, um, TV screen that she's projecting from her laptop and just in the bottom corner, because she has a pretty large group of, of um, Spanish speakers in her classroom. So just in the bottom corner, she will have translated that story problem on the slide just down there. Like just, and some of them can't, cause they're fifth graders. Some of them can't actually read in Spanish. Some of them can't, but like, yeah. you know, it, it's just there as like a scaffold. And it's not like it's, she didn't have to do a whole bunch of work. She just had to go put it in Google and then copy and paste, you know? So, um, and again, it's not going to be perfect, but I just, I feel like thinking of those students as having all these deficits and I've got to get them caught yeah. up and, and all that stuff is just, is just, um, it's a hard approach. And for really, it's a mindset that is not super positive for you or the, or the child, if you're coming at it from what are they not doing versus like starting from where they are, where their strengths yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, it takes time. Um, also getting to know the student, um, especially when you're receiving students throughout the year Yeah, and knowing like, what can they do? What are their strengths or their interests, those types of things. Uh, but yeah, it is definitely, um, there are scaffolds that you can use. There's ways of helping them, um, you know, use their cognates, uh, use their background knowledge as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about challenges that teachers are facing now, differentiating instruction, um, especially some of the practical strategies that you have given to teachers and addressing those challenges. Yeah. So I think, you know, what you just said right there about getting to know the students is some of the 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 easiest ways to differentiate. And I know that seems like kind of like a, what does that mean, Andrea? But, um, you know, kind of a little bit harkening back to what we just talked about with scripted curriculum is Uh, and saying like, you know, we're not teaching robots is that if you are building those relationships and getting to know and really coming at it from a strengths perspective for all kids, not just our multilingual learners um, and involving them in the process, it's going to be so much more powerful. And I think that a lot of kids sort of feel like school is done to them or, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like that, yeah, you know what I mean? Like I have to be here. I have to like do this. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, um, compliance and like, um, some of it's being graded honestly on behavior. And did I, did I carry out something that was a behavioral expectation, you know? And so my, I might be behaviorally engaged, but that doesn't mean I'm cognitively engaged. Like if I've just done, you know, you wanted me to write a paragraph, I did it. You know, you wanted me to turn it in on Friday. I got it. You know, like, and that's it, you know, um, Someone on the outside might say, well, look at the student. They're like, you know, meeting all these expectations. But then like later on, if you ask them to like try to apply that learning or if um, could they transfer that to anywhere else? Or are they even like 
into it and it like, does it feel yeah. relevant to their life? Like, oh, there's all those kinds of things. So I just think that sometimes, and I'm not, I am not going to dismiss that there are so many challenges because I know there are behavior challenges that are, that can be hard. <laughs> I know there are, you know, academic challenges that are hard. And I, so I don't want to make light of it, but I also want to say that sometimes I think we are overthinking it because we just need to get to know the kids and then what did they, and then find the ways in from again, their strengths and what they want to do and having them like self-assess, especially the upper elementary and middle school kids. Like, I think, I mean, if we ask them, they know, like they know more, like like they know what they're doing or not doing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they can kind of say like, yeah, if I look at like all these skills that I should learn um, in this ELA class for seventh grade, like I should be able, like, can I, am I going to be able to do all these things by the end of the year? I hope so. But like, where am I at now? Like, am I doing this already or am I not there yet? Like, and having some of that self-assessment, I think is powerful and it gives them more agency and um, control. And I think it also, like I said, it just makes it more relevant and engaging because then it doesn't feel like school is being done to them, but they're actually like part of it, like, and they're invested in it because it's, it's um, on their terms a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have some strategies in terms of um, how teachers can critically evaluate and select effective curriculum material, especially if that's um, they're in the process with their school or district and they have to find resources for reading instruction? Yeah. So <laughs> the, the one thing, uh, that I think is also interesting is that a lot of things these days have been stamped evidence-based Yeah, <laughs> and that term has become really empty. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, like, um, it, it, it just is like a buzzword. It's kind of just like, it's just a marketing term now. Like it's kind of like saying something is new and improved, you know, like, can yeah. it really be new and improved? Yeah. And in this case, the evidence base is like, well, so what's the evidence like, and especially because, I feel like some of these uh, publishing houses, they were responding so quickly to a need that they threw together stuff pretty quickly. And I get like, I get what they're doing. Again, I, I can always get like why things are happening the way they're happening, but I get worried because I think a lot of school districts are putting in millions of dollars, millions of dollars into buying something that is stamped evidence-based or again, it's stamped science of reading. And again, science of reading is the body of research. It's not, the research doesn't tell you, researchers never think, oh, I found some sort of finding. Now I'm telling you that you have to do it this way in your classroom. Because usually when they've done the research, it's been in a completely different environment that has, you know, like it, especially some of the neurological research, like that's in a laboratory, like with like three kids and no distractions and all those things. <laughs> and, so, and so like the researchers yeah. are not, uh, they're not saying like, this is what, how you should teach. They're saying, oh, this is something interesting we've discovered. I, we don't know the implications of it yet, but like, this is something interesting, <laughs> right? You know, but yeah. I think that like so much of the stuff gets stamped, like science of reading. And usually again, what they mean is phonics and that's not what it is, but like, but um, they're trying to make so many districts happy. And so what ends up happening is they put like everything in the kitchen sink in these curricula. Like they're, they're like, 
you know, like there's a, there's a basal reader and there's also a small group reading. And then there's also like all these workbooks and like, you know, like there's a workbook about grammar and there's a workbook about, uh, you know, for spelling and there's a workbook about writing and there's, and then there's also an online component and you can like do this and that. And then what ends up happening is the poor teachers. Like this is, uh, I just heard this term recently. It's called the basal bloat, which basically means some of these basal curriculum, like they just put so much stuff in it. It gets so bloated because they're, they're trying to make everybody happy. So they have to have all these things like, well, I know this district's really looking for this. So we got to put this in here. And this district would really want this. Like that's what they're valuing or whatever. And then the teachers get it and they're like, okay, great. Like here's all this stuff. How on earth am I possibly going to teach it all? And the answer is you're not. Like you are not going to be able to teach it all. And, um, but they don't really give you any guidance of like, well, so then what do you do? Like, how do you filter it out? How do you prioritize? Yeah. So. So I think when you're looking at, at curriculum, I think you really have to be careful about, and just be like, just be critical, like of anything that says evidence-based, like, and say like, okay, but what is this evidence and how, how was this evidence gathered? You know, <laughs> like, again, did, is it, did we pilot this in like, you know, 10 classrooms all in um, Ohio, you know, or did we like pilot it like across the district and very different kind of populations. Like what's, what's, what is it that really uh, showed evidence of student learning? And again, just because it worked for you over there, that doesn't mean that same curriculum is going to work for me over there because we have too much of a human element in our job. Like, cause the teacher matters, the kids matter. And so it's hard. So I just, I just, again, I like, I know I feel like I'm a little bit of a broken record because I also know that teachers don't have time to create their own curriculum. So like they need something, they need to start from somewhere. I just would like to see people spending more of that money in to training the teachers than they are into the actual materials that some will just sit on the shelf and not even get used because there's no time to possibly use all that stuff. And you've, Again, as a district, you spent millions of dollars on all. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. All these materials. So. Yeah, we're just spending, you know, more time for them to have more uh, PLC or common planning across the district, across mm -hmm. content areas. Mm -hmm to create their own, um, you know, the goals and the um, backwards planning and all that kind of stuff. That's not necessarily based on a curriculum. So yeah, like you yeah. said, they're trying to sell their curriculum with a buzzword. Mm -hmm. um, I did find it interesting though. I was recently at the national conference for foreign language teachers act and they, I hadn't been there for 10 years. And then the amount of publishers, at least the ones that had like huge areas, like of the, the exhibit hall, there was only like one that had a huge area. Like they had some, some ones that had like a table or two, but like 10 years ago and 20 years ago, the publishers, there would be many of them that have these like huge areas of the exhibit hall. So at least in terms of world language teaching, my background, they had like a lot, at least they're not making the teachers use, a lot of districts are not making the teachers use a specific curriculum anymore. So I think those, oh, um, okay. yeah, those um, publishers are maybe not, earning as much money <laughs> I think a lot of those teachers are picking and choosing what um what they want to use uh, maybe parts of a curriculum but not like okay the district's mandating you just follow this this and that from a curriculum but 
like yeah. you said, I see it where I currently am with the, the literacy instruction, the ELD, the um, social studies instruction that they are tied to something that has probably been evidence-based, right? Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the thing is like, I would rather see, like you said, like a group of teachers look at some things and say, Okay, because no curriculum is going to have it all. I mean, we know that already. Like, there's just no curriculum that's going to have everything that you need for your classroom. And I also get, like, we can't have people doing things willy-nilly. Like, you know, I can't have this one teacher teaching it this way and this teacher teaching it this way. So that when the kids move up, like, some of them have this background, some of them have don't have that background, whatever. I So that's why you would come together and, like, make a consensus together as in a PLC of, like, looking and saying, like, you know, we really like this aspect, but it doesn't have anything to do with writing in there. So how are we going to put the writing in there? Oh, there might be a couple of resources or we will write our own units that go and match up with what we're doing in social studies, you know, and we'll kind of, we'll team up with like the social studies teacher. And if they're studying ancient civilizations, you know, maybe we can be talking about writing some sort of uh, five paragraph essay on ancient civilizations civilization so they can be doing some of the work in this class and this class because again like in the real world we don't have our learning siloed like that like you know we wouldn't be like just only focusing on like this one little skill in this one space because those skills carry over to the other um subject areas so yeah i that's that's what i would love to see if like if i could wave my magic wand in a in like a perfect world it would be that We'd be giving teachers more time to learn and to grapple and to try things on and um, create their own curriculum that they could really, you know, so giving them that time to do it. Cause right yeah. now I know they don't have that time to do it. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's complex. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and here we have a lot of teachers um, who might be new to the profession. Of mm-hmm. course we have a lot of uh, jobs that haven't been filled. But when we're talking about teacher prep programs, how do they fall short when it comes to preparing educators for the realities of teaching, reading and writing? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because also they're a business as well. (laughs) And so um, I think the one thing that I've noticed that's happened over the last, I don't know, a couple decades really uh, has been this idea that, you know, um, we need more teachers. So here's a, here's a, a master's in teaching program, or here's how, a teacher certification program. Yeah. And it might, you know, and that's it, separate from like getting like a bachelor's degree or, you know, some sort of four-year degree. Uh, and they're usually like become a teacher quick programs is what I like to say. Like, yeah. you know, they're only a year long and, um, they cram a lot of courses into a quarter and then they have, uh, I mean, they're usually trying to juggle classes and student teaching at the same time um, because of just the way that that's set up for them. And, and it might be a couple of years, but usually it's more like a year, maybe a year and a half, um, like maybe five quarters perhaps. And um, the classes that they take are great in a, like as a starting point, <laughs> like, and, and that you like, you might just barely scratch the surface and, and then it becomes this kind of make or break thing about like, who is your cooperating teacher that you have your student teaching placement with? Because if they aren't um, solid on some of their practices, you're only going to do what you've seen modeled for you. Right. And um, 
I think that it's just not enough time. Like it's just not enough time. It's not enough information. It's not enough time. And it's not enough practical hands-on time of trying it out. Like I, I wish again, if I, if I magic wand, I wish we were able to do a little bit more like a residency program, kind of like, you know, medicine does like where you could have a little bit more experiences in different settings versus you have a student teaching placement. That's a very length. I mean, I know every state has like a requirement for certification, so I know it's going to be something, some what standard, but I feel like each college kind of has their own kind of program of how they do it. But, you know, if I end up student teaching in, um, let's say I, I student taught in first grade, but yet I am K-8 um, certified once I'm done with my program, like, am I really ready to go teach seventh grade middle school? Or, <laughs> you know, like, like I only did first grade, you know, and, and so it would be so great to me. It'd be so great if they had much more practical experiences, like, you know, spent a little bit of time in a middle school, spent a little bit of time in upper elementary, spent a little bit of time in lower, like, so that you could actually kind of like see like the bigger picture of where this is all headed. Um, because I, even teachers who switch grade levels, like maybe I taught fifth grade for five years and now I'm, I, because of staffing or cuts or we've had a consolidate or whatever, now I have to go down to second grade. Well, whoa, like those kids are different learners <laughs> than, than my fifth graders in reading. And they need, they're going to need different skills as a whole group, not just like, you know, some individual kids who might be struggling. It's going to be like a completely different set of skills we're teaching at second grade because they're still on the early side of learning. Like they're just now starting to kind of pick it up versus mm -hmm. theoretically at fifth grade, um, you know, they're much more skilled at pulling the print off the page and it's now getting into the deeper comprehension work um, independently, whereas it's a little bit more scaffolded and supported in second grade. So, so yeah, I, I wish that we had a way for teachers to have much more practical experience for a lot longer. Um, but again, time, money, shortage of people in the profession, like you said, unfilled positions, you know, we're doing the best we can in, in the, in the situation we have. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like if there was actually an industry where we were able to pay people, um, mm -hmm. maybe a beginner teacher salary, that's very low in some States for that internship, um, or practicum experience. Right. And so, so they would do that for a year or two. And then th there would be less teachers leaving the profession because maybe they'd be placed in those three different levels for a year and then they'd be earning um at least something and yeah that's what's that was yeah. that's what the hard thing is i mean there are some people get who are getting into teaching after they've been subbing for a while or yeah. they might be subbing alongside of doing a bachelor's degree so they've gotten in classrooms as a sub so i'm seeing that happen more but i do think that there are a lot of people like you said they're maybe changing careers or they're getting into teaching quick and they don't have that wider range of experience um, across grade levels. So yeah, good point. Um, so another question about reading in terms of um, effective ways. Um, so if we have a, a curriculum or if we have just, um, we're at a school, right, where they may teach reading a different way than we're used to, how is a teacher supposed to separate the sheep from the goats when it uh, comes to figuring out the most effective ways of teaching reading? which could also be if they went from a, a fifth grade to a second grade class. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, what's tricky. And again, it's, it's all about like the labels. What are, what are people telling you is really 
uh, the, the, the true story. So I guess I'd say that like some of those misconceptions are, are what are, if you put your intention, like let's, let's, we'll just take phonics because that's really the main thing that's been like the big buzz right now lately, you know, and it's like, oh, we weren't teaching kids how to really decode words because we weren't teaching them systematic phonics instruction. And this is, you know, this is what we weren't doing. And which is also a huge blanket statement for an entire country. But anyway, it's because I'm pretty sure that's not the case everywhere. But um, but uh, if if we're going to get that laser focus, you know, whenever you're going to focus on something else, you can't do it at the expense of emphasizing the other things that are important. And so I think when I'm saying, you know, when I think about the sheep from the goats, I'm thinking like, hey, like, let's just take a step back and be critical consumers of everything we're taking in right now. <laughs> like, like really think here, you know, because um, there's propaganda all over the place about re teaching reading right now. And if you're not, if you're not going to a source, a real trusted source, um, like the What Works Clearinghouse, for example, because that, that one, like, they only have things on there that have gone through a rigorous process of weeding out what's what's the high quality like it's gone through all the real steps of scientific research and then we've tried some things on in classrooms and then this is kind of what we've seen um you know if you're not going to someplace like that you're gonna get a skewed opinion on what you should do or shouldn't do and really in the end like as teachers we are researchers every day like that's what you're doing. You're in the classroom. You're, you're taking in data. Like you're looking to see, you know, you're making a hypothesis. I think this kid needs to work on this. And then you try something out and you see if it works and then you, you go. So like, and that's like a different kind of research, obviously. But I think that when you're trying to figure stuff out, like, I just, just don't believe these claims that somebody is going to give you a silver bullet. Like if you just do this, your kids will read. Like, cause yeah. there just is no silver bullet as much as we want there to be. There just isn't. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's the way it is with all things in education. There's no silver bullet for uh, classroom management. You know, like there's no silver bullet for kids learning, um, you know, their math facts fluently necessarily. Like, because again, we have variables, a lot of them. Sometimes some classrooms have 30 different variables of learners mm -hmm. in the room. And so, um, yeah, I think when I'm when I'm talking to teachers, I'm saying like, okay, I know you have this curriculum, but like what do your what do your kids really need? Like let's like really mm -hmm. let's really think about what what your kids need. You know, you know, are you noticing what are the patterns that you're noticing? Are you noticing that like they are not transferring even though you have this like shiny um grammar curriculum for example, are they actually transferring it to their writing? Like, or is it, does it feel again too siloed? So like, okay, well then change your approach. Like that's not the thing, you know, and maybe you can use that as a springboard. But, um, I also think that sometimes, um, people are really scared of, because if it's been a mandate and it's been like, you must teach this with fidelity. Um, they're really scared of like trying to make any sort of changes or like mm -hmm. using their professional judgment and, to that, I always say, like, is there curriculum police in your district? Like, and maybe there are, but like, usually they're not. <laughs> like, I can't imagine that your administrator is going around going like, 
she, you know, uh oh, she was supposed to say this in this lesson and she said this instead. You know, like, I don't think that anybody's doing that. Like, why would they have that time? So I think that you like, you can use those materials, but you should still be instructed.